tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well, uh, the readings today, they're wonderful, and, and when we're done, they should make us feel really lousy about ourselves. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> oh, well, you, that, I'm from a German background. Okay. <laughs> yes. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. These are going to make us feel just, just terrible. <laughs> oh, boy, oh, boy. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, you shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our defense against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray, and do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan, and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right, let's open the big book on the coffee table. Give it one. Today we read the, from the book of Jonah, the fourth chapter, first verse and following. But I want to go to the gospel first because it's it's well, this gospel upsets people, not not in a not in a deeply profound moral way, but just on a superficial, I'm upset way. Luke eleven one to four. Oh, there's going to be one of those shows. Well, it's the Lucan version of the Our Father. What do you mean the Lucan version of the Our Father? Yes, the version that Luke gives of the Our Father, which is really quite different than the the version of the Our Father we have in Matthew. Let, I should pull that up, and I'll do it now. Uh, the the uh, the the version of the Our Father in Matthew is more extensive. Uh, it has all these doubles and repetitions, whereas Luke doesn't. Uh, if we look at the Gospel of Luke here, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, forgive our sins. It's much shorter. Well, hallowed be your name, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jewish poetry did... Uh, uh, couples. They, they, this was kind of the way that they did poetry. My shepherd is the Lord, nothing I shall want. Pastures green, he leads me by restful waters. Uh, he's repeating things. My soul, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. That that the same thing is being said, but amplified. Luke is a Greek. He's not doing it that way. He doesn't say that God is in heaven and his name is holy. He just says his name is holy. So, well, which one did Jesus say? This is the troubling part. 
which is the real Our Father? Everybody wants to know the real text of Scripture, the real Our Father, the real this. The real, did Jesus say this? Now, get set to learn something here. There is a phrase called ipsissima verba. Verbum is word, verba in Latin are words. It's a neuter plural. And ipsissi means the very, the very, the very themselves. And um, uh, uh, these both can't be the ipsissima verba Christi. They, they can't be the the the, the words, of, uh, the very words of Christ. Yes, they can be. That that Luke is quoting less of Jesus. And very interestingly, in the text of Scripture, now now get set to learn something again. You run into the imperfect tense. Ah, the imperfect tense. By the word tense in Latin, or tense, when we talk of the tense of the verb, in English rather, it isn't because we're tense trying to learn these things. No, 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 that comes from the, the old French, from the word tense, which means time, the time of the verb. Um, um, excuse my really bad French pronunciation, but it comes from the Latin word tempus, the time. So, the time frame of the word, it's very interesting. We never think about it, yet we do it in our heads. What's the difference between I ate and I've eaten? Well, a lot. If I say to you, uh, do you want to eat? Um, uh, you say, I ate. That means I'm done. But if I say to you, well, I've eaten, <laughs> it means I'm still open to the suggestion. In other words, there's an action completed in the past, which still has bearing on the present. Um yeah, I could have some more. So there's a we we don't even think about these things. We just do them. The brain seems to be wired for grammar. Um, some brains. Well, the the imperfect is an incompleted action in the past, and we say in English, "I was talking," "I used to say," "I used to talk," but it's a little ambiguous in other languages. But when frequently in the text of scripture when they say Jesus said they use the imperfect tense Jesus was saying or Jesus used to say ah that's different so Jesus used to pray in a certain place when he'd finished now this seems to be a specific instance um, I think it's important to realize that because so many people say, well, these couldn't be the exact words of Jesus. I mean, really, they're remembering them years later. And again, I refer to Dr. Peters of, of New York University, um, great scholar. I don't know what his religious life is, but he's he does. He did a book, The Search for the, the Historic, I think it's called The Search for the Historic of Jesus and the Historical Muhammad. Very, very erudite stuff, good stuff. And he makes the point that Probably Jesus' sayings were written down in his lifetime while he preached them because they did that sort of thing. Uh, they wrote them down. It's interesting in this series that's popular, uh, The Chosen, we have Matthew going about obsessively, compulsively writing down things Jesus said. Well, that happened, and, and it seems to have happened in Greek, not in the Hebrew or Aramaic, but in Greek, because there were a lot of people who were Greek speakers in the Holy Land, and a lot of Jews outside the Holy Land who were Greek speakers. So everybody was multilingual uh, to some extent, pretty much, and these things would have been written in Greek because they would be more accessible uh, to a wider group of people. So the the original text of Scripture is, generally speaking, Greek. And the the fact that these words are different than the words in um, Matthew, remember, Jesus used to say. 
he didn't say these things once. I remember <laughs> it was I was a bit chagrined, but I was giving I, I, I was on a retreat team and we had to go do youth retreats when I was a youth, and um, uh, I had a stock sermon that I gave about somebody who died. And I was talking about this the other day, who died and was revived, and you know they they. Um, uh, uh, and there was a doctor who was experiencing these patients uh, talking about hell. And I said, and it hit him like a ton of bricks. The entire team in the back row was mouthing my exact sermon. Because a good preacher, or a preacher, not a good one, but a preacher, uh, if he runs into a good phrase or a good sermon, he doesn't use it just once. Trust me on this point. He repeats it. And uh, uh, that's why it sometimes seems like sermons are memorized. Well, parts of them are. So Jesus used to say, and so the disciples remembered. They actually, I think they actually wrote down, and they remembered the words of Jesus as he said them. Particularly, we ran into a couple things uh, last week in the Gospel of Luke, which, which were very much, well, for want of a better word, Hebraicisms, the way that Jews repeated things. Uh, I have desired with desire to eat this Passover. That's a very Jewish way of saying it. I've really wanted to eat this Passover. So uh, Jesus will repeat things like that. And that's a common thing that Jews do. So that's what I wanted to say. People get upset with this. Well, which is the real Our Father? They're both the real Our Father. Think of one as the Lucan short form one. But they're both the, the real Our Father. Now let's get to Jonah. Good old Jonah. Well, you know the story. Jonah doesn't want to go to uh, Assyria to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, not because he's a coward. He he's telling people, "Throw me and throw me overboard," because I don't deserve to live. Uh, he's not a physical coward. Uh, he's he doesn't want to go to to um, Nineveh because he doesn't like them. So he goes to Nineveh. Uh, on Kel Clark's show today, he did a wonderful teaching on it, and he quoted um, the, the Jonah's death psalm, he, the prayer he prays in the belly of the whale. It's really beautiful. But um, Jonah gets spit up on the beach, and then God says, I want you to go to Nineveh. He says, all right, I'll go to Nineveh. Well, here we see that, that Jonah is one of the great kvetchers in history. A kvetch is a complaint. Uh, in, 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 in Yiddish. And this is one of the great kvetches of, of, of biblical history. And, uh, he was a nudge. What is a nudge? He's a, a person who bothers you. So, um, and he's a shlemiel. A person who is a shlemiel, uh, causes other people to have bad luck. So, <laughs> having called Jonah, the prophet, a, a nudge, a shlemiel, and, 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 and a kvetch, I beseech you, Lord. Is this not what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled to Tarshish. I knew you are a gracious and merciful God. In other words, he was angry because God was 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 merciful. And the Lord asked, have you reason to be angry? And uh, um, uh, he's saying, I, I don't want to live. I'd rather die. <laughs> you ever heard the line, thank God he's dead. This would have killed him. This is Jonah. I wish I were dead. And... Uh, 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 he's, this is, this is what we call a kvetch. Well, think about it. Jonah is not a nice guy. He doesn't like these people and he doesn't like the fact that God likes them. Hmm.
<laughs> well, uh, well, there's a profound thought that I wanted to share about that, but it's it's uh, it's 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 somehow buried itself in my brain. It'll come back. While Jonah left the city for a place to the east of it, he built himself a hut and waited under the shade. Uh, and the Lord God prov provided a gourd plant that grew up over Jonah's head, giving shade that relieved him of any discomfort. Jonah was very happy over the plant, but the next morning at dawn, God sent a worm that attacked the plant, so it withered. When the sun arose, God sent a burning east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head till he became fate. Then Jonah asked for death, saying, I'd be better off dead than alive. Have you? And then God said to Jonah, have you any reason to be angry over the plant? I have reason to be angry, angry enough to die. Jonah is, this is, this is a really irritating person. You're concerned over the plant, the Lord said, which cost you no labor and which you did not raise. It came up in one night and one night perished. Shouldn't I be concerned over Nineveh, the great city, which there are more than 120,000 persons who cannot distinguish their right hand from the left, not to mention many cattle? God is even concerned for the cattle. In other words, Jonah, Jonah hasn't comprehended God's love and mercy. I said earlier that, that Jonah was angry because God is merciful. I am very, very fond of God's mercy when it's directed at me. <laughs> um, you know, I've said this before, and I, I don't mean to be offensive, but the hardest part of Christianity, you know, we have all these things that are great questions, like if God loves love, why is there suffering, or that sort of thing. Why, why this? Why that? But when you really get down to it, the hardest thing to swallow about Christianity is the absolute forgiveness of God. It's wrong. It's unfair. Now, take a deep breath. I'm going to say difficult things. <laughs> I don't believe he did it. But if Adolf Hitler had repented, God would forgive him. Well, that's not right. Now, it seems unfair and unjust. And it is unfair and unjust, except for purgatory. Now, now, hang in here as I try to reason about this. The worst sinner in history, whom St. Paul claimed was himself, can be admitted into heaven. But that does not mean they do not suffer the punishment appropriate to what they have done. I have, as I'm always telling you, and a lot of people who die and live to tell about it. You know what they say? They say they experience all the pain that they caused. They experienced all the pain that they caused. Now, think of the pain that a man like Adolf Hitler caused. Killing 600 million Jews, untold numbers of gypsies, untold numbers of Poles and Russians. In other words, um, uh, he caused incredible suffering to them and to their loved ones and to the world in general. He's going to experience all that suffering. Now, will he experience it eternally in hell? Well, I can't judge even his soul. Um, but you see, if there is no purgatory, if there is no judgment, then God is unfair and unjust. But we will experience all the pain we caused. Still, there are people who are just so wicked 
or who have hurt us so badly, who we think are so wicked, that we want them to suffer eternally. And when we want someone to suffer eternally, we become worse than the great tyrants of history. They wanted people to suffer for a moment. But to wish someone to suffer hellfire eternally, that person is barbaric. That person is worthy of the punishment that he would inflict on another. So you understand what I mean when I say the mercy of God is the hardest thing to accept about Christianity. People think, oh, it's the nicest thing. Oh, no, it's nice when I get mercy. It's not nice when you get mercy. You follow? Jonah did not want God to be merciful. He wanted God to be his definition of just. But God's definition of justice includes generosity and mercy. There you go. That's why we pray, forgive us. <laughs> that uh, we might be forgiven. And no way to be forgiven unless you forgive. No way to have your sins let go of than to let go of the offenses made against you. So I, I hope you understand what I mean, that the hardest, the hardest thing to accept about Christianity, if we really think about it, is the absolute mercy of God. Tough to tough to take. Well, let's let's think about speaking of the absolute mercy of God and things that are tough to take. Let us talk about mass hysteria. Oh dear. Oh dear. That's a lovely song. It's a great song. Sing it at the prayer meeting. Okay, I. I as you know, I, I often talk about um, my my Pentecostal charismatic roots and very still very important part of my spiritual life. You know, one of the problems with us charismatic types is we want spontaneous masses and structured prayer meetings. I will never forget in our Spanish prayer meetings. Uh, the leader of the prayer meeting, looking at his watch and saying, ha llegado la hora de la sanación. The time for healing, as he looks at his watch, has arrived. And I used to say, Holy Spirit doesn't own a watch. He had to get home. It was late. Let's end the prayer meeting by praying for the sick and we'll get out of here. Structured prayer meetings. Uh, this person can talk, that person can't talk. The best definition I've ever heard of uh, for a prayer meeting was a, a spontaneous gathering, or not spontaneous, but a gathering of the people of God for the exercise of the gifts of God. And um, that idea of structure, you know, it's it's not part of a prayer. But it is part of a mass. You know, I've been trying to tell you that this is a covenant uh, ceremony. It's a sacrament. It's the sacrament. And the word sacrament means oath to the death. This is a covenant. And as a such, it has very structured parts that cannot be fooled with. Mass is not supposed to be a spontaneous thing. Your reaction to it might be spontaneous and gloriously uh, uh, ecstatic, yada, yada. But the liturgy itself is structured. And the Greek word implies something that's very structured. They, they rehearsed and practiced. It's a structure because it's a contract in which you, re, you, I said yesterday, the readings are not just for our instruction. We are regularly, as Ezra did for the people of, his, uh, of Jerusalem, we read last week, 
Ezra read out the details of the contract of the covenant, and so it is that when we hear the scriptures read at the beginning of the Mass, it's to remind us what we're signing on for and re-signing on for every time we go to Mass. So understand that, 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 that this is not about how we feel. Uh, you make it wonderful feel as once again remember i'm i i describe myself using the word pentecostal uh, um but all the feelings in the world won't change a thing i love a good religious emotion but that's not what the mass is for it may be a byproduct of our participation in mass and a, and a wonderful gift of the lord but it isn't it isn't that covenant. So, so understand that that we come to the Lord with our needs uh, because He is our the Lord who has made covenant with us. And I, I wish I could share with you uh, what a dramatic thing that is. That there's a whole group of of monotheists. I don't want to mention names, but another of the great monotheistic religions, not Judaism, but another one. Uh, very. They believe that God does not make covenants with human beings he, that would lower his dignity. And they're right. It does lower the dignity of God to make covenant with us. And just because God lowers himself doesn't mean he does not have an infinite sovereignty and dignity. And that should be respected by the way we attend Mass and uh, by our reverence for the parts of the Mass. So, so understand that the Mass is not a gathering of the people of God uh, to express their love for God in an emotional way. It may happen, but that's not its purpose. The purpose of the Mass is to renew our covenant with the Lord, which was made for us on Calvary. All right, with that said, I, I hope I'm not just beating a dead horse here, but we got to get the liturgy back. We just have got to get the liturgy back. And by that, I don't mean Latin Mass or English Mass. I mean our sense of the sacredness of what we're doing and an understanding of what we're doing at Mass, that this isn't just a diversion on Sunday mornings. Not at all. All right, we're going to come back, and we'll have letters, and we'll open the phones. Please call early. I get some great phone calls in the last three minutes. 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. We'll be right back. The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com slash forester. Will you be ready to go home, to go home, to live with him up there around the throne? When he says, come unto me, will your soul be clean and free? Then will you be ready to go home? That's... It's a good question, because we're all going <laughs> to. All right. Oh, before we move on, I want to mention that Saturday we have a very special broadcast. Um, uh, um, it'll, it's going to be 11 Central. Uh, uh, the ap- uh, Mass commemorating the apparition of, of our Blessed Mother at the Shrine of Our Lady of Good Help. Uh, if you've never been up there, it's it's really worth going to. It's it's a lovely place, and uh, Bishop Brickin's going to be the celebrant, so that's going to be this Saturday at eleven, and uh, it'll be beautiful. So be there or be square. Oh, and also speaking of 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 fun things, don't forget uh, to go to Relevant Radio and and uh, uh, put in your your I don't know what would we call it. Put in your your request, I suppose. Yeah, put your information in in to win the uh, 
the the outdoor nativity scene, the 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 you know the stuff you put on your lawn to let people know that you believe this is about Jesus, and and all you need to do to to find all about it is to go to uh, 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 where's the little thing that you go to? Uh, let's see here, it relevantradio.com slash nativity relevantradio.com slash nativity that's it thank you dear voice in my head but now let's go to letters i, I someone told me that that and this is a good letter to read today um the the somebody wrote in this was a while ago no way wrote in a, uh, just a comment i think you took too long to deal with the progressive people that were in control of the church where i used to be pastor Oh dear, <laughs> and and then he says, "Please keep me anonymous," which I didn't do. Sorry about that, anonymous person. Uh, I may have made up the name, but uh, moving along, um, the uh, um, you know, God doesn't want us to to come down like you know, ugly on an ape or white on rice or sledgehammer on an anvil. Uh, and I got another question that. That I think I may have dealt with that yesterday. Why is it that Jesus said it'll be worse for you on the day of judgment than for Sodom and Gomorrah? He said that to Horison and Bethsaida, and but then he said when the disciples said, "Shall we call fire down on this on this um, town?" He just rolled his eyes and said, "Moving on here," uh, because God doesn't want people to be um, uh, turned away. Unless it's absolutely necessary. I didn't do anything about uh, the craziness, though. You know, it was just awful. The, the liturgy was just a disaster. And, and um, you know, the, the Lake and Celebrants, uh, uh, arguments in the congregation during the prayers of the faithful. I'll never forget there was one guy who would say that my wife would stop being so mean to me. Let us pray to the Lord. And from the other side of the church, the wife, that my husband would stop being such a jerk. Let us pray to the Lord. This And this would last for half an hour. <laughs> That's not what the liturgy is for. Well, shouldn't you have intervened earlier? Well, for one thing, I couldn't, because these were people who uh, had uh, friends in influential places in... in uh, in namely my immediate superior this was many many years ago uh and uh but but still god didn't want i don't think the lord wanted them to be uh, you know shown the door uh however when they advertised a march uh in favor of abortion that did it i would sit in the back of the church and just listen and i'd listen to the same old tired sermons about uh, that had nothing to do with the gospel, and watch these practices that that were just awful. But then, when they announced that they were going to access, uh, that they wanted women to have greater access to the to murder their children, um, that was it. That was the hill I was willing to die on, and that's where the Lord said, "Enough is enough." The rest of the stuff wasn't enough. It's horrible, but it wasn't enough. But the killing of children, that was enough. So I, uh, I said, no more. And uh, it was five years of, of, of real struggle. So, I, no, no anonymous person. I, I, didn't, I shouldn't have come down on them earlier. Uh, I came down on them when I absolutely had to. Um, 
So there you go. Um, all right. Now, this is a, a, a question easily answered. Well, no, it's not. It's a very simple question to which I will give a very difficult answer. Would it ever be permissible to marry in the church but not legally? I mean, could a man or woman get married sacramentally but without, without a marriage license by the state? I know of no place in the United States um, where that is true. Uh, if I were to do a, mar- a wedding without uh, a civil marriage license that is considered, I believe... I, now, someone corrected me. It may only be a misdemeanor, but it, it's. It, I was told it was a felony. It comes with quite a fine and a possibility of jail sentence to do that. Uh, so, no, you can't. And I can only marry those people who uh, my bishop says I can marry. If I'm not in relationship to my bishop, then... I, I can't witness uh, a wedding. You see, what we believe about marriage is the bride and groom are the ministers of the sacrament. We believe this in the Latin church. Uh, but I think that uh, people say the Eastern church looks at it differently. Yeah, but they don't totally disagree. I, that's for another day. But they're doing the wedding. I'm the I'm the ecclesial witness. And if I'm cut off from my bishop, then... I can't be an ecclesial witness to witness this wedding. And therefore, uh, if if my bishop says I must obey civil law in this, I must obey civil law. But my personal opinion on this is that this is a violation of the separation of church and state. You know, the whole issue of uh, who can get married and who can't in the church um, the, 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 I, I, I believe that the state has no, uh, no right to tell me whom I can or cannot marry. They have the power to do it, but they do not have the right to do it. And, uh, you know, the questions about, for instance, same-sex marriage, all that, these are, if you want to be married by a justice of the peace and enter into a social contract, they ain't none of my business. However, the covenant of marriage is not the business of the state. And I really do believe that that it is it is wrong. It's a separate... Well, someone once said, well, the marriage has an interest in... in uh, the state has an interest in marriage uh, because of the the generation of children. Well, that, that canoe is over the waterfall. Uh, <laughs> there are not many children involved in a same-sex marriage. Uh, no, what they want is the the fifty hundred bucks. I forget how much it costs now uh, to get a marriage license. Uh, but I, I really believe that it is a, an infringement of the separation of church and state. Uh, you know, the, the states actually demand the license, not the federal government. Uh, but still, I think applying the separation clause of the Constitution. Uh, of the federal government to the states and this is in this area is appropriate but it ain't going to change in my life i don't think uh so no you, the answer is no uh can't do it uh, it would be very unwise and very disobedient to do it okay uh let's see here one more letter and uh then we'll take a break uh in a, the psalm of the mass on uh, what day was this sent on september 29th was by the waters of babylon uh, 
it's, you know, by the waters of Babylon, we lay down our harps and wept. I thought that the, most of the Psalms were traditionally credited to King David. I'm wondering if the Psalms considered prophetic or attributed to a later writer. I don't know that most of the Psalms are, are, are the product of King David. There are many Psalms which clearly are not written by David. Uh, and there are clearly Psalms which tradition says were written by David. Uh, the, um, uh, they'll say a Psalm of David, a Psalm belonging to David. Uh, there, there were many Psalms written by David. I think that's, I, that just, I, that letter makes me want to do a little sidebar. When you think of it, and this is kind of a parable for our, all of our lives, that David, uh, wanted to build the temple and the Lord said, you can't build the temple. You're a man of blood. Your son will build the temple. And, uh, David being David said, okay. I mean, instead of saying nonsense, take that prophet out and shoot him. I'm going to build a temple. No, he was able to hear God and David was able to repent. Thus, he was a man after God's own heart, despite the terrible things he had done. But, you know, when you think about it, the temple is no more. There may be one step in the Haram Sharif, the place, uh, the site of the temple, uh, which is now occupied by the Golden Dome of the Rock. There may be one step uh, above ground, which was part of the retaining wall of the Temple of Solomon. Lean Rittmeyer had, did wonderful stuff with Dr. Lean Rittmeyer. I think that last name is spelled R-I-T-M-E-Y-E-R. Lean is L-E-E-N. Easy to find. Fascinating scholar. Um, well, other than that, there's nothing left of the Temple, of the, of the Temple of Solomon. Uh, maybe some of the, the, the stones in the eastern wall, uh, maybe, uh, David built something that lasted much longer. He laid the foundation for the book of Psalms. He may not have written them all, but he laid the foundation for that book. Uh, and uh, every Sunday you sing and I sing songs uh, for which we should give credit to David, whether he wrote them or simply created the venue for their writing. Uh, you see... I've got my plans and I got to have this and I got to do this. I want this. And God says, I got something better for you. And we say, I don't want something better. I want to do what I want to do for your glory, Lord. It's for you. Nonsense. It's for my glory. David was able to hear God. And thus, when the prophet said, you're not going to build a temple, David said, okay, he built something better. All right. We are going to go to a break. We'll come back with a word of the day and we'll take phone calls at 888 9149149. That's 888-914-9149. The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com slash forester. Lord help me, Jesus. I've wasted it so help. Well, that could be certainly the song of the prophet Jonah or David or anybody who takes this stuff seriously. Oh, Lord. Um, this is, uh, oh, I feel a sermon coming on. But instead of that, let's go to the word of the day. Oh, that was a good gonging. The word, I've shared this before, but hallowed. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. In the version in Luke, in the version in in uh, 
in in Matthew, and and the word is uh, I'm sure I don't even have to look it up. Well, I probably should though. Um, it's hagiasteto. Let me see if it's the Lucan version is It's yeah, in Greek it's hagiasteto in Matthew. And now let's go to the Lucan version just to make sure I'm not just. I'm sure it's the same exact word. Okay, hold on. Click, click, scroll. Yeah, I guess they do. Same exact word. It means to, to make holy. That's what hallow means. Abraham Lincoln said we cannot hallow this ground any more than it's been hallowed in the Gettysburg Address. To hallow something. Halloween is uh, all saints even. Hallow means holy and even means evening. And the hallowed are the saints, you know, the holy ones. How can I possibly make God's name holier than it is? Well, this is a very Jewish phrase. When a Jew sanctifies, and that's the Latin word, sanctificare, and that's what we use in English, our Father who art in heaven, sanctified be thy name. Um, when a Jew talks about sanctifying the name, he means being killed because he's a Jew. That they're marked with the name of God, and thus they are fair game and killed by people who hate God. Um when you say the Our Father and you say, Hallowed be thy name, you're volunteering for potential martyrdom. That's what you're doing. I, I tell you all the time, the Our Father is the most dangerous prayer you can pray. You know, we make perfect liars of ourselves and then we go up and take the Holy Eucharist. But just remember, when you say, Hallowed be thy name, you're saying, Lord, if it means dying for you, I will die for you. If it means living for you, I will live for you. I will sanctify your name. That's a good question. Is God's name held in greater reverence and regard because I'm around or not? Good question. All right, let's go to phones. The phone is ringing. The phone. Who have we got on the phone? Jackie from Chicagoland. Are you with us, Jackie? Oh, Kathy, not Jackie. Kathy, are you with us, Kathy? Yes. Thank you for taking good. my call, good. Father. Good, Ignore Jackie. She's. We're not talking to her right now. Go on. What can I do for you, Kathy? I just have a question on your advice for giving um, communion or um, for people who have dementia, like mild dementia, or if they're in like mm -hmm. an institution yes. setting that's not Catholic. You yes. know, should you get them to mass mm -hmm. or something like that? Hmm. Well, it depends on their condition. Um, uh, you know that that. Um, you know that you hear me say it all the time. We're not we're not souls uh, trapped in bodies. We're incarnate spirits. I'm a spirit that is a body and a soul, and we receive Holy Communion because it ministers to our body as well as to our soul and our whole spirit. So. I would say to the degree that a person can receive Holy Communion, yeah, you should try and get them Holy Communion. And if they if they can go to Mass, um, you know, to the degree that you can do that, do it. Uh, it's not required of them because, uh, of course, they're not in in their in their full mind and thus don't have full freedom. Of, of the blessing that communion can be to the body and the soul, it's a noble thing to try to get people um, to the to the sacrament. And you know, if if you're a communion uh, visitor who takes Holy Communion to nursing homes, that sort of thing, a tiny little bit of the host 
uh, and a sip of water might might be the way to do it. Um, but you know, you want to make sure that the host is not, uh, say, spit out and swept up with the garbage kind of thing. Does this help a little? Uh, yeah, yes, it does. Um, yes, it does, Father. So I just was trying because my we just put my mom into a um, a facility that's it's not Catholic, and they have mm-hmm. a, a, yeah. a non denominational Christian service, and she does pray the Rosary. Mm-hmm. She did sign up for that. She wanted ah, that. good. So I'm Go thinking, so she's, should I she's try there. to should I try to do yeah should I try to do something more for her since she still has it kind of um, sure. You know, At this point, desire. I would I would bring her Holy Communion as awful as possible. As often as often okay. as often as possible, yeah. If you can okay. have yourself delegated as a minister, fine, or or someone from the parish or or the parish priest, you know, and um, and and get her get her ask if the priest would would come hear her confession and anoint her while she's still uh, able to do that. And I'll be keeping in mind oh, it's a okay. tough thing. It's a tough thing. Yeah, because yeah. she's yeah, she wasn't she's capable of it. All of it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Now here's know, another question. Real quick, sure. Um, I am a minister of communion, but she's not in my parish. Mm-hmm. She's in another parish, so I was going to go to that priest. That's all right. To ask him to do it, um, should I do that? You, or? you can. Well, uh, you know, if you can bring Holy Communion, uh, um, if you can bring Holy Communion uh, yourself to your mom, that would probably be good because she's she's going to know you. Uh, a little better. So uh, just ask your pastor if that's all right. And if he has problems, then you go to the other priest. But no, I'd get the Blessed Sacrament on Sunday and then just make that your ritual go from Mass to see Mom. So, all right. I will certainly be praying for you. That's got to be tough. It's got to be tough. God bless. Well, who do we have now, dear voice in my head? Adrienne from Oak Lawn, are you with us? Yes, I am. Um, I have good, a question good. about... Uh, the Pope speaking from the chair of Peter, that's what I grew up hearing, mm-hmm. ex cathedra, I think it was called. Yeah. Um, yes. What exactly, <laughs> it sounds strange, what exactly happens? Um, how, how is it explained? And I, don't, I well, do believe ex-cathedra. it. I just yeah. wanted to understand oh, it. Oh, sure. Sure. Ex cathedra, that means from the chair. Uh, uh, the cathedra was a straight-back chair. Every rabbi had a teaching chair. We see that uh, in the in the gospel, um, um, uh, um, Jesus in the gospel of Matthew, he goes up and sitting down, he opened his mouth and he spoke. Jesus is speaking ex cathedra, it means from the chair, and uh, that's that's um, that's the idea. And and rabbis brought their teaching chairs with them. So we celebrate the Feast of the Chair of Peter. So ex cathedra really means uh, when the Pope is sitting in the place of Peter. Uh, um, and this is what Pius IX defined it as in 1870. It means when in the exercise of his office as shepherd and teacher of all Christians, in virtue of his supreme apostolic authority, the Bishop of Rome defines a doctrine concerning faith or morals to be held by the whole church. Uh, he has to be. It has to be clear that he is speaking ex cathedra. It has to be uh, about a, a doctrine of the faith. He's infallible, and in, in, uh, we believe, and that means that the Holy Spirit won't let him down uh, when he speaks of faith and morals. Now, if the Pope gives an opinion, that we assent, uh, we give assent to that, but it isn't considered a doctrine of the Church. I think it's very important to understand 
that that the Pope does not have the authority to create a new doctrine. In other words, he couldn't wake up tomorrow and say, there are eight people in the Trinity, and I'm saying so ex cathedra. He doesn't have that authority. What he has the authority to do is to uh, apply the teachings of the church that we have always held to the modern age. Uh, and it's funny because there have only been two things that are clearly ex cathedra, uh, the assumption of the Blessed Mother and the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Mother. Now, that doesn't mean when the Pope, uh, we, don't have to, we don't have to pay attention to the Pope and other things. He is the, the supreme teacher of the Church, and it's his job to make sure that the Catholic faith is taught uh, throughout the world. Now, very interestingly, though, uh, encyclicals, a teaching papacy, that's a very modern thing. The Popes didn't do that until, well, until about 200 years ago. 250 years ago at most, uh, they, they didn't do that. They would intervene when there was heresy, and they would make do their best to make sure that, that the best people were made bishops, and they didn't appoint bishops, that they, they would veto bishops. Their, their authority was seen more as a kind of veto. But in the modern age, we have a teaching papacy, which is, which is kind of unusual. Um, however... We give assent and and we pay attention to what the Pope says, even if he's not speaking ex cathedra. But an ex cathedra proclamation is a very solemn thing, and it has to be clear that that uh, that that uh, a a dogma of the faith is is being defined and applied. You know, it's an interesting thing that 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 it isn't. The, uh, for instance, with the Immaculate Conception, the assumption. Uh, these are not new ideas. They're old ideas that had fallen into disuse. And that that's kind of what the Pope does. He reminds us of things that we have always believed uh, that have fallen into disregard or disuse. And he reminds us, hold on, hold on. We we believe that the Blessed Mother was immaculately conceived. And we believe that she was in promise of our resurrection, that she was assumed bodily uh, into heaven. Does that help? Yes, it does. And then, really, um, I guess I would. I wonder now: Would the encyclicals be, um, or any writings that they did recently, would that be considered if they were on doctrine, um, on doctrine or dogma? That would be considered from the chair of Peter. And not strictly speaking from the chair of Peter, but we we give assent to those. Uh, there are different levels of assent. Uh, it's 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 rather complicated, but but we give uh, moral and intellectual assent to those things. Uh, but usually, they they encyclicals especially are um, um, encyclicals are are usually very topical and applied to a certain time in history. Uh, um, so an encyclical is 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 a it literally means a circular letter. And and it it it's to deal with with a problem that that um, that presents itself in the the this immediate uh, situation. So yeah, we 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 have to pay attention to those. And when the the encyclical, when the Pope says something in in an encyclical, uh, that that. Um, you know, we don't just say, ah, that's just that's just his opinion. That's no, no. He's 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 he, in a sense he is sitting in the chair of of Saint Peter. That uh, um, 
um, that he he's exercising the teaching role of Peter. So um, we, we take them very seriously. Uh, it's a specific. Uh, it's a it's a pastoral letter about Catholic doctrine. So what the Pope is doing is he's talking about Catholic doctrine, and so we don't just set that aside. Uh, um, uh, the the how to put it. It isn't at the same level as papal, uh, papal, an ex cathedra statement, but it is a, a restatement of a doctrine to which we already give assent. Therefore, we give assent to a papal, uh, to an encyclical. It's, I'm going to have to, 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 to talk a little bit more about this. We're about to end the show and that's good because, John, and he's not nearly as foggy as I am. Um, but but we have to understand that encyclical letters do de- they do demand our assent. Uh, it isn't the supreme. Po- oh, I'll talk about it tomorrow. Uh, at some point, I'll make it the word of the day. How's that tomorrow? Because uh, it's important. It's important. All right. And speaking of important, Drew is coming up.